Welcome to our 51st episode of Two Tankers and a Cat. We're your host, I'm Charlie. And this is Russell. Well, Russell, we've got a pretty interesting episode today. We're going to talk about uh, taxpayer waste dollars. Ah, uh-huh. that sounds <laughs> yeah. like it. And so that, you know, things that are current and still happening today. Well, sure it is. Oh, we're going to get into it, but why the military wastes so much money on things that are don't work. Exactly. I don't know. But give me some good news. I know we've got a new patron. Uh, yeah, we've got a new patron through our Patreon program. Welcome, Razbaz18. Yeah, Razbaz18. Of course, that's not his real name. No, that's his handle that he goes by. Yeah, but uh, uh, very cool of you to uh, join us. Um, we are going to do some stuff with our Patreon program. Uh, for the private content. Yes, we are. And we're still working all that out right now. And right, right. We've got I think a, it ought to be a pretty exciting venture. Yep. That's going to be cool. Uh, we have to have a big shout out to Craig Moore. Uh, uh, exactly. You know, here's a guy that's a real friend to the show. And uh, after the last show, he sent us some voicemail. Yeah. And it was incredible. He has such a cool voice. Now, I know he's going to go, oh, I hate my voice and everything. I'm like, man, over here in the United States, his accent, <laughs> I wish I could do his accent. <laughs> you know, you know, there'd be so many women just falling all over oh, us. Oh, man. Besides that. We'll uh, definitely have to try to have Craig on one of these days through Skype or something. We'll get that all figured out eventually, too. And I, I want Craig to be, be excited the for that third yeah. member of two tankers. Oh, man. We can switch it to three tankers. Uh, you, you can't get any better. For the, I know. Yeah. This is a guy that's really trying yeah. to help us out because he knows that we're trying to. And I know Craig's probably excited, too. I think he's got, a, what, another four or five books coming out that uh-huh. he's been working on and yep. finally got them. Almost ready to come out, it sounds like. So, and, and we will he, definitely announce the titles of those and everything when he does finalize all that. But yeah. And if you guys don't know who Craig Moore is, it's real oh, simple. Go man. to Amazon.com. Yeah. Look up Tank Books and author uh, Craig Moore. Yeah. You just can't do any better. No. Well, we got, we give out shout outs to like Ed uh, Webster. Webster. Yeah. He's a great guy. Francis Pullman, uh, Hillary Doyle. Yeah. These are all, all old-timer, old-guard Yeah, um, These are all tankers. old folks that you know, have the time to go to the archives to dig all this stuff up and, yeah, and put right. it in writing. And Francis Pullman's like, hey, I'm 24. You can't call me old. <laughs> well, that's not what we mean. These are yes, like the old-guard, yeah. you know, the originals. So bonus there. Um, now you were telling me that people can leave us a voicemail since Craig did. Craig did a little bit different. You can send us a message, a voice message through uh, messenger, but I don't know if I can get that actually put on the podcast or not. So what's this um, deal now? Yeah, right now we can, you can go to, uh, our website, www.twotankersandcat.com 
and scroll down just a little ways and there's directions there on how you can send us a, a voicemail. Uh, you click on the red button to the left of the directions there and it'll come up with another little uh, box that says start recording. Probably the easiest way to do this is on your mobile device or tablet that actually has a microphone built in, unless you've got a microphone on your computer, and some folks do. Uh, but you'll be able to leave about a 90-second message um, that we will have access to, and I'll be able to download that and, and include those messages in a future episode of a podcast. So you're saying our fans can go to our page, yes, Two Tankers and Cat, Dot com, yeah. Dot com, and look for this, send us voicemail. Yes. And they can. And I'll also put a, uh, we'll probably post a link on Facebook also. Of how to get there? On how to get there. Uh, pop up with the box right there from Facebook in, in your browser. Excellent. So we can actually you get. You may actually run into some problems um, if you have an iOS device, iPhone, something like that. You will have to use a Safari browser. It's the only browser that you're able to record audio in okay. on, on those devices. But it, it still works. I've tried that out firsthand myself. And you just hit the start recording button when it pops up and record up to 90 seconds. Tell us what you want to hear about in the so future if, podcast if or I'm comments on, or anything. If, if I'm on my laptop and I'm using Windows, yeah, I just can just hit As long start as you recording. have access to a... Uh, microphone, yeah. Yeah. All right. Excellent. Good stuff. Yep. yep. Excited to hear from all you folks out there. Hey, I hope you are getting my message well. So I hope you receive my gift soon. It's a small remembrance and a way for me to thank you for your great podcast. I love your job, uh, your show, and I hope I hear more from you soon. And uh, here it goes. I'll also say my name in English, I think. Antonio Bernarda. It's more or less like this. <laughs> so just just uh, making a little fun of, of you guys butchering my name. So anyways, keep, uh, keep being awesome and uh, hope to hear from you soon. Bye. So I guess our first key point that we're talking about today is going to be the M551 Sheridan AR slash AAV. I guess you would call it the Armored Reconnaissance airborne assault vehicle but this is a tank that you know you and i are both familiar with we've seen it down in fort bliss yeah and i believe we also saw it down in fort hood fort hood and uh russell just give us a story about how this call came to be the M551 Sheridan was a light tank developed by the United States and named after General Philip Sheridan of American Civil War fame. It was designed to be landed by parachute and to swim across rivers. It was armed with the technically advanced but troublesome M81 slash M81 modified slash M81 E1 152mm gun launcher, which fired both conventional ammunition and the MGM-51 Shillelagh guided anti-tank missile. The M551 Sheridan entered service with the United States Army in 1967 at the urging of General Creighton Abrams, the U.S. commander of military forces in South Vietnam at the time, 
The M551 was rushed into combat service in Vietnam in January 1969. In April and August of 1969, M551s were deployed to units in Europe and South Korea, respectively. Now retired from service, it saw extensive combat in the Vietnam War and limited service in Operation Just Cause in Panama and the Persian Gulf War in Kuwait. The Sheridan was retired without replacement officially in 1996. A large bulk of Sheridans were retained into service at the National Training Center at Fort Irwin, California, and as Armor Officer Basic Training at Armor Training Center, then located at Fort Knox, Kentucky. They worked as simulated Soviet Armored Opposition Force to train U.S. military units on simulated tanks on tank-armored combat to test on combat effectiveness in a desert environment. They were finally retired from the NTC in 2003. You know, I'm sitting here thinking about what you just said, and I guess I'm going to give the people more information before I make my whole standing on a soapbox and complaining. (laughs) So, Russell, tell us about its development. In the immediate post-World War II era, the U.S. Army introduced the M41 Walker Bulldog into service to fill the role of a light tank. The lifespan of the M41 was fairly short. At 25 tons, it was considered too heavy to be a true light tank and had rather short cruising range. Plans were started to build an even lighter replacement mounting the same gun, resulting in the T-71 and T-92 test designs. Two prototypes of the 19-ton T-92 were later ordered. However, as the prototypes were entering testing, information about the new Soviet PT-76 light tank became available. The PT-76 was amphibious, and soon there were demands that any U.S. light tank should be able to swim as well. And we have talked about the Soviet PT-76 and right in previous podcasts. And I think that was uh, one of the first tank battles, or the only tank battle in uh, Vietnam. Vietnam, yeah, yep. in the Vietnam War. The T-92 was already in the prototype stage and cannot be easily refitted for this role, so the design of an entirely new system started as the XM-551. In the 1960s, the Army was also developing the MBT-70 main battle tank with West Germany. Fearing Congress would balk at funding two developmental tank programs, the Army chose to designate the Sheridan as an armored reconnaissance vehicle rather than a light tank. At the same time of the M551's acceptance into service production in 1966, the United States Army no longer used the heavy, medium, and light tank classifications. In 1960, with the deactivation of its last M103 heavy tank battalion and the fielding of the new M60 series tank, the U.S. Army had adopted a main battle tank doctrine, a single tank filling all combat roles. The U.S. Army still retained the M41 Walker Bulldog light tank in the Army National Guard, but other than the units undergoing the transitional process, the regular Army consisted of main battle tanks. Partly because of this policy, the new M551 could not be classified as a light tank and was officially classified as an armored reconnaissance slash airborne assault vehicle. In April 1965, the Army awarded a four-year $114.5 million contract to the Cadillac Gage Division of the General Motors Corporation for the production of the M109 Howitzer and the XM551 General Sheridan. GMC said the Sheridan would begin production in January and be delivered to the Army in June. So, in 1965 dollars, 
they're spending almost $115 million, which was a huge chunk back then. Oh, yeah. That's, you know, we're, that's a we're, lot of money. We're talking 1965. Yeah. I, I don't know what that would be with 2020 conversion. But here's the kicker. They had the Bulldog, and they found out the Russians had an amphibious armored carrier tank. So instead of saying, oh, okay, we've got this M60 for our main battle tank, we're going to go ahead and use this tank also, or we're going to build this tank that can swim. Okay, swimming tanks. Number one, that's kind of funny. (laughs) But I don't want to get into that. It was tried well in the past. <laughs> exactly. Maybe not the best idea to put a you know gun barrel underwater and, and well, a I don't want multi-ton piece of metal. Yeah, I don't want to get into that. Ah. I don't want to get into that. We'll, we'll have a talk yeah. about that later. But we had the M103, which was our heavy tank, and they came up with the M60. I have no problem with the M60. We see a lot of them here in the United States at like our Veterans of Foreign War, Veteran Halls and stuff like that. These are good tanks. You know, these were the America's main battle tank. They said, okay, we want this Sheridan too because it's going to be able to swim. So let's basically lie to Congress and say, oh, no, no. It's not a tank. It's an armored reconnaissance vehicle. Yeah, you know what? When you start taking millions of dollars away from something and and you're lying to Congress, you know, people that are sent by Americans to watch over their tax tax dollars, and you have these, I'm I'm sure they were trying to do the best they could, but there's so much waste, and these guys are basically lying to Congress and say, oh, no, no. We're not asking for a second tank. We're real happy with the M60, but now we want a swimming tank. Uh, uh, well, uh, ar- armored reconnaissance vehicle. I think that's beginning where you're having some problems. You're, when you start off with a lie, you're going to have problems. In February, two squadrons totaling 54 Sheridans were operated in South Vietnam in March 1969 after the Army invoked secrecy in declining to disclose program costs, a government Accountability Office official said development costs had reached $1.3 billion. Congressman Samuel S. Stratton criticized Army officials for the program's high costs and accused officials of concealing cost figures to cover up for their own bumbling ineptness. A GAO report leaked in May revealed the Army had fast-tracked the program to avoid budgetary scrutiny despite indications by May of 1966 that the tank's caseless ammunition was prone to cooking off. The problem had since then been resolved by a compressed air system that forced hot ammunition residue from the breach, the Army told Congress. The Army said the Sheridan had performed well enough that it was planning to send hundreds more. A congressional report in July identified $1.2 billion wasted on the M60 and Sheridan. The report attributed several Vietnam War casualties to Sheridan design folds and said that the tank had been wholly unready for combat there without extensive and costly retrofits. See, right there, they start off with a lie. Now, every every tank or any military involvement, there's going to be a little bit of waste. But, you know, it's like our old joke here, you know, you can buy a left-handed hammer for $500. Because I've actually seen that in some of the research that I've done. They actually, on an invoice, had $500 left-handed oh, hammers. Wow. And I'm like, 
There is no difference no. between right and left. There's no, no such thing as a left-handed hammer. <laughs> wow. Somebody was having a joke. Well, sure. But it's not a joke when you're wasting yeah. taxpayer money. Yeah. And they started off with this Sheridan, and now it went from $114 million to $1.2 billion on this Sheridan. And now they're hiding stuff. They're covering up, and this congressman digs into there, and he says, you guys are lying to us. There's something wrong, yes. starting with the Sheridan. Very much so. The vehicle designed to mount the gun had a steel turret and aluminum hole, although the hole could deflect heavy machine gun fire of up to 12.7 millimeters AP. It was, it was easily penetrated by rocket-propelled grenades, which could destroy the vehicle if the spalling contacted the caseless main gun rounds. See, there, there's a problem right there. And I know people are like, well, we're hearing about this Sheridan gun that it's having cook-offs because they're loading it into the barrel. There is so much residue, rocket fumes and particles and fuel in the barrel that when they shove it up, it's actually starting another fire and wow. causing it to explode. If you're losing people... In the tank, you're you're losing good Americans because they're trying to put a bullet in the gun, not not even shooting it, trying to shove it in there. Yeah, you you've lied to Congress, you've killed Americans. This is getting to be criminal. But yeah. go ahead, Russ. Like the M113 armored personnel carrier, it was also vulnerable to mines. Swimming capabilities was provided by a flotation screen similar to that used by the World War II amphibious. D-Day tanks. The front armor was overlain by a wooden surfboard, actually three folded layers hinged together. This could be opened up into a sloping vertical surface in front of the driver, providing a bow of a boat hole about level with the top of the turret. Fabric formed the rest of the water barrier, folding up from the compartments lining the upper corner where the side met the top of the hole and held up at the back with the poles. The front of the hole was provided with a plastic window, but in practice it was found that water splashing onto it made it almost useless, and the driver instead usually had to take steering directions from the vehicle commander. The M2 Bradley adopted a similar solution, but dropped it with upgraded armor. Here here we're talking again. Anytime that you're adding wood to a tank, probably not a good idea. So they go to the designers and they're throwing millions and billions of dollars at them. And they're like, hey, uh, why don't we uh, make this tank float? (laughs) Well, he's like, okay, I'm going to have to add wood. Oh, okay. I guess you can add wood. Wow. One good RPG round. And this thing has got a hole in it. Yeah. And if it's firing that rocket-propelled, you know, ammunition, you you don't want an RPG sh- shooting that, Man. you know, because you're going to have a dead crew. And the bottom part uh, is aluminum, so if you run across a mine, you're dead. Oh, my God. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Just incredible. In the Vietnam War, firing the gun often adversely affected the delicate electronics which were at the early stages of the transition to solid-state devices. So the missile and its guidance system was omitted from vehicles deployed to South Vietnam. The expensive missile was fired in anger only in the Persian Gulf War 
Operation Desert Storm, despite a production run of 88,000 units. Okay, so this and the Bradley was what gave and still gives the U.S. military a black eye about wasting money. Um, They have 88,000 rounds of this Sheridan rocket, you know, ammunition. And it was made for Vietnam. So until it gets into Operation Desert Storm, that's when it fires, you know. And it was just a few rounds and stuff like that. So they have afterwards... You know, when they decommission it, they've got to take this highly unstable rocket shell tank ammo and get rid of that. And they got to take the wood off these Sheridans and just a waste of money. Yeah. Russell, give us some story. You know, help me understand about the production. The production started on July 29th, 1966, and it entered service in June of 1967. With the 1st Battalion, 63rd Armored Regiment at Fort Riley, Kansas. In the end, 1,662 M551s were built between 1966 and November 2nd, 1970. The total cost of the M551 program was $1.3 billion. The M81 gun had problems with cracks developing near the breach after repeated firing, a problem that was later tracked to the key on the missiles that ran in a slot cut in the barrel. Most field units were modified to help address the problem, but later the modified M81E1 was introduced with a shallower slot along with a matching modification to the missile, and that cured the problem. The gun also had been criticized for having too much recoil for the vehicle weight, the second and even third road wheels coming clear off the ground when the main gun fired. Some were experimentally fitted with conventional 76mm guns, but these actually never entered service. Wow. They knew this thing was crap, but they kept wasting money with it. Uh, We go from a great cheap tank like the Sherman. Yeah. In fact, what your last sentence said is they were experimenting with the 76mm gun. Going backwards. It was on the Sherman. Yeah. They're like, well, we know it works, so we're going to put that on there. Because when we use this rocket gun, it it breaks and kills people. Wow. Somewhere before you get to $1.3 billion, sometimes, like when we studied World War I and World War II, you know, when they found out something wasn't going to work, they stopped and said, we can't do this anymore. We, we, We need to go down a different route. You find something that works, and then you, then you have something that you can spend money on. But they threw $1.3 billion at this crap tank that has a wood front, you know, and aluminum bottom. And that if it got hit with a simple RPG, even if it didn't get hit with RPG, the rounds would still cook off inside and kill everybody. Somewhere down that line, you're spending that much money, you're, you're going to get a designer go, you know what? This isn't going to work. We we should really stop lying to Congress and telling them, hey, this is what gives our military a big black eye. Exactly. On, on waste. Yeah. I'm not saying about other stuff. I'm just saying on military waste. Yeah. Think about how much they could have done better. I, I, I don't know. Russell, uh, tell us about some of its combat deployments. The first Sheridans to arrive in South Vietnam did so in January 1969 and were accompanied by their factory representatives 
instructors, and evaluators as the new vehicles were issued to the 3rd Squadron, 4th Cavalry Regiment, and the 1st Squadron of the 11th ACR. By the end of 1970, there were more than 200 Sheridans in South Vietnam, and they stayed in the field until the last U.S. Armored Cavalry Unit, the 1st Squadron, 1st Cavalry Regiment, prepared for redeployment back to the United States on April 10th of 1972. By the end of its combat debut in 1972, the Sheridan had seen extensive action in the Vietnam War, being assigned to nearly all armored cavalry squadrons involved in that conflict. In 1969, armored cavalry units, minus the 11th ACR, which retained its M48 tank companies, began replacing their M48 tanks, which in turn were normally transferred to the South Vietnamese military. Like the M50 Antos anti-tank vehicle, the battle reports from the troops were sometimes glowing, while the reports higher up the chain of command were often negative. This was largely due to the high casualty rates of both Sheratons and their crews, as mines and rocket-propelled grenades that would only damage an M48 Patton tank would actually destroy the Sheridan and kill or wound most, if not all, of its crew. A 1969 evaluation of the vehicles found that the M551 was employed in reconnaissance, night patrol, and road clearing, accumulating 39,455 road miles and 520 combat missions with a ready rate of 81.3%. Despite vulnerability to rockets and mines, it was judged worthy of applying modifications and equipping all cavalry squadrons with the Sheridan. In addition to the problems presented by aluminum construction, the Sheridan had a defect that no other common armored vehicle possessed. It fired caseless 152mm main gun rounds. These rounds were fixed, meaning that unlike the artillery, the warhead was factory attached to the propellant, and if the warhead separated from the propellant during loading, which was not uncommon, the crewmen were instructed to not load the round. Sometimes these unspent propellant charges remained on the turret floor due to the emergencies at the time, and in either case, all the remaining serviceable 152mm shells still remained caseless, albeit attached to their warheads and sleeved into a reusable white 9-ply nylon bag, which was form-fitted to hold the propellant portion of the shell. The white or silver-colored bag had a strap attached to the bottom, which the loader would grab and pull off prior to gently inserting the shell into the breech. Once a mine or RPG-type weapon created the spark, smoke and fire become imminent, and it became a matter of standard operating procedure to abandon the tank immediately. On February 15, 1969, just one month after the Sheridan's arrival in South Vietnam, an M551 from the 4th Cavalry detonated a 25-pound pressure-triggered landmine, which ruptured its hull and ignited the 152mm shells resulting in a secondary explosion that destroyed the tank. As you can tell by listening to this episode, we've had some stuttering and stammering because Russ and I, I think this is the first tank that we've actually researched that it was such a blatant lie yeah, um, that it caused people to die. Yeah, unnecessary deaths, really. And, and, and I'm reading in between the lines, and I hope you listeners will too. They're getting the individual soldier which is some young 18-year-old kid, when they shipped this thing over, they had the engineers and designers and the advertising people, and they would send the kid out in, in the tank, and he, he would come back, and they'd say, okay, soldier, you tell us honestly, what do you think of this tank? And he's like, oh, oh it's a great tank. It's a great tank. He's a scared kid. 
But when he gets up the ranks, and this kid's dead now because he hit a simple landmine that maybe would have thrown a track on a patent or something like this, has actually caused this kid to die. Then the mid-officers are like, this tank is junk. Um, I know that in 1967 and 1968, Australia was looking for a scout tank, and the USA sent two of these Sheridans. Uh, you know, and after trying them out in the Queensland area of Australia, they found out it was junk and dangerous. And they sent them back to to their, uh, you know, meet their requirements and stuff like that. But after all this stuff, you know, they're like, listen, you guys might be bragging on this tank, but this is dangerous and it's killing people. And, and it's a terrible tank. And this is Australia telling us. You've made a huge mistake, and we don't know how you got this even to be built, but we don't want it. I know they started, they had a bunch of our old, um, what do you call them, Russ, the M113 armored personnel carriers? Yeah. And I know they turned them into the M113A1 fire support vehicle. I want to do a story on that. You know, we're going to do a story on Australia saying no to the Sheridan. And grabbing a simple tank that we've seen hundreds of times. In fact, we've been in. And uh, this M113. And basically, they put a turret on it. This is something we could have used and done the same thing. But they used the, I think it was called the Alvis Saladan armored vehicle turret. They had all these extra turrets. And they said, you know what? We've got these M113s. Cut a hole in the top and put a turret on it. And we'll use that as our armored personnel carrier. And it was amazing, and it worked. I'm sorry, Russell, go ahead. The Army began to phase out the Sheridan in 1978, although at the time there was no real replacement. Nevertheless, the 82nd Airborne Division was able to keep them until 1996. The Sheridan was the only rapidly air-deployable tank in the inventory. During Operations Desert Shield and Desert Storm, 51 Sheridans were deployed by the 82nd Airborne Division, and were among the first tanks to be sent. Although photos that were published at the time showed rows of Sheridans ready to defend against Iraqi tanks, they would have a limited effect against the Soviet-designed T-72s, which comprised the bulk of the Iraqi Republican Guard. Their role was limited to reconnaissance due to their age and light armor. It was likely that no more than six Shillelagh missiles were fired at Iraqi anti-tank guns, or T-55s, This was the only occasion in which the Shillelagh missiles were fired in a combat environment from the inventory of 88,000 missiles produced. Again, we've talked about this. We made 88,000 of these things, and they were worthless. Worthless against the new T-55s, T-72s. They wouldn't penetrate. Yeah, well, they cracked the barrel of the gun, so that's probably why they didn't really want to shoot too many of them. Right. They they don't want to shoot the gun. And when they told the kid loading it and the, and the actual captain, hey, if you shoot this, is, there might be some stuff in the barrel. So when you, if you don't clean the barrel out first, when you're in combat, like our M1 Abrams, they'll, they'll fire on the move. Yeah. They're bam, 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 bam. And they want this Sheridan to be, you know, a quick, fast attack vehicle. But you got to stop, aim, clean the barrel, load it, put some kind of bag 
that what you were talking about, nylon bag, light the fuse on that and wait for it to shoot? The stupidest thing. And spending a billion dollars on it? That's the stupidest thing I ever heard in my life. These guys should be charged criminally for this. And again, we're getting angry again. We get angry when um, when good people die because of waste and stupidity. Being cops, if you're drunk and driving down the road, and you kill somebody, you run over some little kid, we don't go, oh, well, okay, you're not responsible because you, you were drunk. No, we throw you in jail. You know, we charge you with homicide because you knew everybody knows. Oh, I didn't know driving drunk could kill somebody. And here they are. They have yeah. documented scientists and, and in the field stuff that people are dying. And they're throwing money at it. That's criminal. I'm sorry, we're we're getting angry again. Let's <laughs> let's just fin- try to finish up. The Sheridan's only airdrop into combat occurred during the United States invasion of Panama, Operation Just Cause, in 1989, when 14 M551s were deployed, four were transported by C5 Galaxy, and ten were dropped by air. Though two Sheridans were destroyed on landing. The four M551s transported by the C-5 were securely deployed to Panama in November 1989, where they were attached to TF Bayonet, the 193rd Infantry Brigade, and attached down further to TF Gator. The Sheridans took part in the attack on the Commandancia, initially supported by fire from Quarry Heights, and later displacing forward into the city. As part of Team Armor, these Sheridans later provided support to JSOC elements as they secured high-valued targets throughout Panama City. The remaining eight Sheridans were delivered to Torrijos Takuman Airport some hours after H-hour by low-velocity airdrop technique from C-130 transports. The Sheridans' performance received mixed reviews. They were lauded by their operators and some commanders as providing firepower in needed situations to destroy hard targets. However, the Sheridans' use of just heat rounds limited their effectiveness against reinforced concrete construction. So they take this to Panama, and it was designed to be parachuted. They lose two, just dropping them, you know, and they're like, okay, uh, uh, it, it was effective because it had a machine gun, and we could machine gun certain, you know, areas. Okay, but what about these concrete bunkers that they had that our infantry is going to have to go you know, charge and kill, you know, with your big missile gun, it should be no problem. Well, it's really just high explosive anti-tank ammunition that really doesn't work good against concrete. So you you might as well just send some kid up there to get it. This thing was junk. The Sheridan, having been retired at the end of 2003 and was scrapped or made available as hard targets, or in a few cases, as museum pieces, like we've seen. Yeah. Uh, Many were dumped to create artificial wreaths. And this is what killed us. This is the most expensive artificial wreaths I know of. This is ridiculous. They spent a billion dollars, over a billion dollars. And they're like, well, it's 2003. We, we, We really messed up. We need to get this junk off off the field. So let's go ahead and uh, put some in our museums, you know, at Fort Hood, Fort Seal. And I know there are a few on static display too. Right. Outside. I mean, I think we're going to be able to see a couple of those 
next month when we go on our little trip to Fort Leonard. Yeah. To grab them, these, these things, and to stack them on each other to make an artificial reef? Come on. Russell, tell us the stats. I, I apologize again. I got angry, but this, this bothers me. But go ahead and give me my favorite part, the stats. The M551 Sheridan was produced between 1966 and 1970. They built a total of 1,162 of these tanks. The mass was 15.2 tons or 34,000 pounds. Had an overall length of 6.3 meters or 20.6 feet. It had a width of 2.8 meters or 9.1 feet. Had a height of 2.3 meters or 7.5 feet high. They had a crew of four, which included a commander, a gunner, a loader, and a driver. The armor was an aluminum hull with a steel turret. Just incredible. I've never seen anything like that on a tank ever. And they didn't talk about the surfboard on the front. Uh, You and I have both been on the Sheridan, and we were sitting there tapping on it. And we were like, that's wood. It's a surfboard wood. It's not even like a hardwood. It's a surfboard wood. And, And aluminum? Man. So you get a, a Pepsi can yeah. or a Coke can and put some wood on it and tell somebody to go out there and run over a mine. Yeah. Somebody got rich off this project. It is, yeah. <laughs> somebody hopefully is going to get caught and go to jail Man. for this. The main armament was the M81E1 rifled 152 millimeter gun slash launcher. Carried about 20 rounds and it carried about nine of the MGM-51 shillelagh. Missiles, which they rarely shot. <laughs> For reasons <laughs> that it would kill them. It had a secondary armament of one fifty caliber M2 Browning machine gun with about 1,000 rounds of that ammunition. It also had a had one thirty caliber M73 slash M219 coaxial machine gun, which was later replaced by the M240C with about 3,000 rounds of ammunition. The engine was a Detroit diesel General Motors 6V53T, six-cylinder turbocharged diesel engine, cranked out about 300 horsepower or 220 kilowatts. The power-to-weight ratio was about 19.7 horsepower per ton. It had a torsion bar suspension and an operational range of about 348 miles or 560 kilometers. The maximum speed on the road was about 70 kilometers per hour or 43 miles per hour. And it had a swimming speed of about 5.8 kilometers per hour or 3.6 miles per hour. Wow. What a complete waste of taxpayer money. It is a sad day when the U.S. should, you know, which should be a leader, has to look at some a country like Australia for proper tax usage. You, you know, we were talking about they had that armored vehicle. Yeah, the M113. And they're they're excited. You know, yeah. they, they, they've had this M113 from the United States, and they're like, well, you know, the United States has got some great vehicles. Oh, can't wait to try out this new Sheridan because it's supposed to be able to swim. Yeah. All right. Yeah. They take it up there, and then they send it back. They're like, hey, we, we don't know what you guys are doing. Yeah. We, we don't know how you're betraying your own country like this, but we don't want these. And send them back. They go and cut a hole in their armored personnel carriers and... Put a, you know a seventy six millimeter gun on it, a fifty caliber and a thirty caliber. So when you look at the Sheridan here and saying, well, you know, at least it had machine guns on it and you could go out. 
we could have done that and saved a billion dollars just grabbing the armored vehicles we had at exactly. the time exactly. and putting these turrets on. I, I don't know. I don't know. Let's let's just get get off this because we're both getting angry about <laughs> this. Um, let's go to uh, our second point, and our second point is going to be about uh, Operation Spring Awakening and a little bit of the Lake uh, Balaton offensive. Now, when we did our Tiger Two episode a couple episodes ago, we were going to use this as our second point. But we couldn't for the simple fact that it was too long of an episode. Go ahead and give us some information on Operation Spring Awakening. Now, this happened what time? Yeah, the time period was about March of 1945. Uh, been March the 6th through the 15th. It was the last major German offensive of World War II. It took place in Western Hungary on the Eastern Front. This offensive was referred to in the Soviet Union as the Balaton Defensive operation. The offensive began in great secrecy on March 6, 1945, with an offensive near Lake Balaton, an area with the last significant oil reserves still available to the Axis powers. The operation involved many German units withdrawn from the failed Ardennes offensive on the Western Front, including the 6th Panzer Army and its subordinate Waffen-SS divisions. The operation was a failure for Nazi Germany. So when we talk about the Ardennes offensive, we're talking about Battle of the Bulge and, and that and that push. When that got all tore up and they were losing it, they backed off, and then the Brits and, and the French and, and the Americans kind of stabilized right there, trying to figure out if that we Hitler was going to hit them again, reform. So they stabilized their lines. They brought up everything they should have had in the first place. Tons of artillery, aircraft to make sure they couldn't be pushed. So he grabs all that stuff from the Ardennes and then shoves it towards this eastern offensive. On January 12th, Hitler received confirmation that the Soviet Red Army had begun a massive winter offensive through Poland. Hitler ordered Field Marshal Jurd von Rundstedt to withdraw the following units from active combat in the Battle of the Bulge, the 1st SS Panzer Corps with the 1st SS Panzer Division, and the 12th SS Panzer Division, along with the 2nd SS Panzer Corps and the 2nd SS Panzer Division, and the 9th SS Panzer Division. These units were to be refitted by January 30th and attached to the 6th Panzer Army under the command of Sepp Dietrich for the upcoming Operation Spring Awakening. We had talked in previous episodes about the Hitler Youth uh, SS Division, that 12th Division. Here these kids are getting slaughtered, and now he's going to pull them out and shove them against the, you know, the Soviets. We keep saying Russians, and we apologize yeah. for that. We actually mean the Soviet Union. But they said, okay, we're going to do this great offensive because we have to save these oil reserves. Tell us a little bit more about that. Hitler wanted to secure the extremely vital oil fields of southern Hungary as this was the most strategically valuable asset remaining on the Eastern Front. The deadline of January 30th provided impossible for refitting to be completed. During a situation conference on January 7th, 1945, at which both Hermann Göring and the Field Marshal Gerd von Rundstedt were present, Hitler proposed his intention of pulling the 6th SS Panzer Army to form a reserve due to severe Allied air attacks. Von Rundstedt, received the withdrawal orders on January 8th, and the Panzer Army's divisions began preparations to withdraw from the front. 
the slow withdrawal, which was greatly hampered by Allied air superiority. So Hitler was starting to worry about his oil fields, <laughs> but only now, which is crazy. Yeah. And we've already talked, like I said, about the 12th uh, Children or the 12th SS Children's Division. I'm sorry, Hitler Youth. Sorry not to uh, trying to offend fans of the brainwashed child soldiers. Sorry, that still ticks me off. I know, it does. Um, Russell, go ahead. On January 12th, the Soviet 1st Ukrainian and the 1st Belarusian fronts began their offensive with over 2 million men, placing considerable new pressure on the Eastern Front. When this news reached Hitler, he immediately began to plan a major offensive on this front. Meanwhile, during January 14th, on the Western Front, the 2nd and 9th SS Panzer Divisions had to be recommitted back from reserves due to successful Allied fighting. On January 20th, Hitler ordered Gerd von Rundstedt to withdraw forces from the ongoing Battle of the Bulge. The 1st SS, 2nd SS, and 12th SS Divisions managed to disengage and withdraw the same day. Almost all support units of the 6th SS Panzer Army were pulled from the Ardennes by January 22nd, while the 9th SS Panzer Division was the last to leave on January 23rd. On January 22nd, Hitler decided that the 6th SS Panzer Army should not be sent back to the Western Front, but rather to Hungary, a view Heinz Guderian partially agreed on. Guderian wanted the 6th SS Panzer Army on the Eastern Front, but there to mainly protect Berlin. See, Heinz Guderian saw the writing on the wall. He's like, listen, let me have the 6th so I can barricade B- Berlin and maybe we can save some of our civilians and stuff like that from what's coming. It's not going to happen. He's like, yeah. no, no, take our last bit of strength and we're going to go try to take care of our oil wells. Don't worry about the people. Yeah. Don't worry about the taxpayers. Go get my oil. Yeah, save the oil. A glimpse of the ensuing verbal exchange during this argument was captured in Alfred Jodell's post-war interrogation, where he states Hitler said, You want to attack without oil? Good. We'll see what happens when you attempt that. However, the main reason for sending the 6th SS Panzer Army south into Hungary can be understood through the list of main strategic points listed in a situation in the East Conference held on January 23rd. The Hungarian oil region and Vienna oil region, which made up 80% of reserves, without which the war effort could not be continued. The Danzig estuary, vital for U-boat operations and Upper Silesian industrial region for the war economy and coal production. These two quotes illustrate how seriously Hitler, viewing his ruling, Hitler considered the protection of Vienna and Austria as of vital importance and that he would rather see Berlin fall than lose the Hungarian oil area in Austria. What kind? Just an evil individual. Just I don't evil. know. I don't know how else you could put it. Just evil. Yeah. I, I don't have words for it. No. I, I, I'm just flabbergasted that he's letting his own women and children in Berlin, where he's at, you know, he's like, I won't leave Berlin. Yeah. But it's going to be leveled. No, well, I still need my oil and stuff. Hitler accepted the risk of the Russian threat to the Oder east of Berlin. On January 27th, Heinz Guderian was tasked by Hitler to stop the 3rd Ukrainian Front in the vicinity of the Margette Line in order to protect the vital oil fields. The following day, January 28th, this operation received its preliminary name, Operation Sud. The main objectives of the operation were as follows. The security of vital raw materials such as oil, bauxite, and manganese for iron, 
arable land for food and crops, the Austrian military-industrial complex, and the city of Vienna. And to stop the Soviet advance, interestingly, an additional side objective was the hope that serious pressure on the southern Soviet fronts in Hungary would force the Soviet command to divert some forces from its northern offensive headed to Berlin towards Hungary. On March 6, 1945, the German 6th Army joined the 6th SS Panzer Army and launched a pincer movement north and south of Lake Bautan. Ten armored panzer and five infantry divisions, including a large number of heavy Tiger II tanks, uh, struck the third Ukrainian front, hoping to reach the Danube River and link up with the German 2nd Panzer Army forces attacking south of Lake Balton. Uh The attack was spearheaded by the 6th Panzer Division, or Dietrich's Army, and it made good progress at first, but as they drew near the Danube, the combination of muddy terrain and the strong Soviet resistance had ground the Germans to basically a halt. Russ, tell us a little bit more. By March 14th, Operation Spring Awakening was at risk of failure. The 6th SS Panzer Army was well short of its goals. The 2nd Panzer Army did not advance as far as the southern side of Lake Balaton as the 6th SS Panzer Army had on the northern side. Army Group E met fierce resistance from the Bulgarian 1st Army and Josip Tito's Yugoslavian part- Partisan Army and failed to reach its objectives of Mohawks. German losses were heavy. They had 15,117 casualties in the first eight days of the offensive. The 6th Panzer Army and the 6th Army had only 332 tanks operational left of the original 1,000 operational at the start of the offensive. Good Lord. Wow, 700 tanks taken out. And and, and what, 17,000 guys or whatever it was? Wow. Plus, you're talking about the Yugoslavian forces. I'm telling you, those... Soviet forces had their T-38s. Yeah. Or uh, T-34-85s. Yeah, I apologize. Yeah. Their IS-2s, their ISU-152s and stuff. They had their stuff together. They did. Here again, they're trying to take these Tiger twos through mud and everything, getting stuck. And they're getting tore up. But um, tell us a little bit more about their strength. On March 15th. The Liebstandart SS Adolf Hitler strength returns on this day show the Germans with 35 Panther tanks, 20 Panzer IVs, 32 Jagdpanzers, 25 Stug threes and Stug fours, and 220 other self-propelled weapons and armored cars. 42% of these vehicles were damaged under short or long-term repair. The Das Reich Division had 27 Panthers, 22 Panzer IVs, 28 Jagdpanzers, and 26 Stugs left on hand. So the two attacks around the lakes left and right really tore these guys up. You know, they're fighting to get around the lake, trying to hook up with the, you know, forces that, that are there, the actual country's forces. The, they just get really tore up. Russ, tell us a little bit more about all that. On March 19th, the Red Army recaptured the last territories lost during the 13-day Axis Offensive. Sepp Dietrich, commander of the 6th SS Panzer Army, tasked with defending the last resources of petroleum controlled by the Germans, joked that 6th Panzer Army is well-named. We have just six tanks left. 
The failure of the operation resulted in the armband order that was issued to Sepp Dietrich by Adolf Hitler, who claimed that the troops, and more importantly, the Liebstandarte, did not fight as the situation demanded. As a mark of disgrace, the Waffen-SS units involved in the battle were ordered to remove their cuff titles. Dietrich did not relay the orders to the troops. I guess the best way to say this is, here's Adolf Hitler. I, I don't want to debate, get into the politics. You know, I, I think you kind of feel how me and Russ consider this idiot. I, I'm sorry, this fool, this genocide. But anyway, to get past the political stuff. Yes. He turns his back on Berlin. He's going to let these innocent women and children burn. He marches these guys into the field. They're fighting the Soviet war machine at its best. They're dug in. It's muddy. It's their perfect terrain. They send these young Germans and loyal, you know, other countries like the French and Swedish and Finland and, you know, other volunteers that they had. They charge these people and they do some tremendous heroic deeds. But afterwards, when they couldn't get the job done, because they didn't have enough support, they didn't have enough fuel, food, men, you know, like we were talking about. These guys were in the Battle of the Bulge in that freezing weather, and then he picks them up in the middle of the battle and shoves them into another battle against the Soviets. He's like, oh, well, you guys failed, so now you're going to have to be marked with shame. You can't wear these cuffs. Well, Russ, uh, episode 51 has been... Kind of a angry episode. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, we apologize for uh, the starts yeah. and stammers, but we knew we were going to have a problem as soon as we yeah. started this episode. Yeah. Me and Russ both were angry about this episode, but, you know, that's what we're here. You yep. know, you let people know what it's really not happened. All, not all rainbows and sunshine. No doubt. Um, Russ, we got to do our Patreon shout out, so let's do that. Yeah, we want to start by thanking our patrons. Um, New patron, Razbaz18. He comes in at our Abrams level. Evan is still with us at our Abrams level. They'll have Antonio Bernarda. And Slam Jamington. And who else? Alejandro Martinez. And our friend of the show, Bjorn Ben. ODS Thero at our Stuart level. And, and everybody's favorite, Rick Schmidt. Rick. <laughs> Drink, drink one for us, buddy. No doubt. He uh, contacted us and he said, hey, the coins that you're sending out to the Patreon users, that's very, very cool. He yeah. says, I hadn't seen that. Yeah. Really appreciate it. I've got plenty more here, folks. So if you want if you want a coin, become yep. a patron. Yeah. Support us. Yeah. You, you got to remember, we have different levels. I, I think we even have like a $2 level. Yeah. So for Stuart, like three Stuart levels, the $2 level. Yeah, for a lousy two bucks. Yeah. You know, you can be one of our patrons. We'll yeah. give you a shout out and we'll send you a coin. Yeah. Yeah, they're really neat coins. I'm glad I come across those. And I did acquire several more here not too long ago. So I've got plenty. Nice. Well, I guess that's the end of the show, Russ. Yeah. So this is Charlie. And this is Russell. As always, happy tanking and have a great week. Thank you.